Hello and welcome to the International Society of Hypertension podcast. My name is Associate Professor Francine Marcus from Monash University, Australia, and I'm the chair of the ISH Mentoring and Training Committee. Today, I have with me Associate Professor Dilla Berger, who is a senior scientist at the Kidney Research Center, the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute, Department of Cellular and Molecular Medicine, University of Ottawa. Dylan is also the chair of the ISH Communications Committee, the deputy director of the ISH Hypertension News, and an incoming associate editor for the European Heart Journal. Uh, welcome, Dylan. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview with me today. Thanks, Francine. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, so let's go straight into the questions for today. Um, can you tell us how did you get involved with hypertension and the ISH, please? Yeah, I mean, I was I was always sort of from the very start of my career, even as a student, interested in cardiovascular disease, working in cardiovascular disease, and and my my PhD research was actually focused on ischemic heart disease and myocardial repair. But um, as I was working through that, I sort of began to appreciate that you know myocardial infarction is kind of a late event and the product of a long term effects on the vasculature. And so, as I was looking for where to go with my career. And as I was starting my postdoc, I wanted to be working earlier in the process and, and hypertension was kind of a natural fit. So I had the opportunity to work with Rianne Taos, who's a, a former ISH president um, as a postdoc. And she really brought me into the world of hypertension and brought me into the world of ISH, um, initially getting me started on the new investigator committee and, and, and getting me to the Vancouver meeting in 2010. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, and then we did an interview with Brienne as well, and uh, she's wonderful. So, yeah, no, she's a, she, I assume she would have been a great postdoc supervisor as well. She's had a major influence on, on my, my development, really a critical mentor for me. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Yeah. Sitting in committees is important to advance career progression, but it can be quite time consuming. Um, how has your participation in the ISH committees helped you to advance your career? Oh man, where to start? Um, for me personally, at least, sitting on committees has just opened so many doors. Um, it is time consuming, um, like you said, but really, at least in my case, the, the benefits really outweigh the burden. Um, you know, sitting on committees, especially in the ISH or international organizations, you're going to be interacting with leaders in your field regularly, and you're having an opportunity to build relationships with them. And, and that really can pay dividends in the long run. You know, when you're, generally speaking, the people you interact with and collaborate with come from your supervisor and your mentors. Um, and as you're trying to move towards independence, you're, you're looking to expand that network outwards. And committee involvement is really a great way to meet new people and expand your network. Um, now, I would say, you know, a couple of pieces of advice. Um, one is, like, be prepared to work if you're going to sit on a committee, because you won't get any of the benefits of sitting on a committee if you just sit there. Um, it might look good on paper briefly, but the research communities are small, people talk, and, and if you deliver, that's going to make a big difference, and if you don't, it's going to be remembered as well. Um, and, you know, in terms of limiting the burden on you, you know, the advice I would give is, is look into working with a committee that's going to contribute to your professional development and try to make that involvement beneficial on multiple levels. So I'll give you an example of my own. 
which was when I was on the new investigator committee uh, with the ISH, I worked in the media working group and I did this because I wanted to improve in that area. I, I wanted to improve my communication skills. And so, you know, during that time I was able to get started on social media and, and develop teaching and, and writing as well. And so I think over the years that, is, that has been a big benefit in terms of increasing my profile. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I completely agree with the points you highlighted in terms of uh, sitting in a committee to actually contribute and take advantage to meet new people and develop personal skills as well. That's really good advice. Thank you. And can you define your mentorship experience in one word? <laughs> it's always, uh, always a bit of a challenge to limit it to one word. Um, if I was, you know, picking one word, it would be network because I really haven't had one single mentor, but a network of many mentors that I've relied on. And, and you know, these mentors influenced me or helped me in, in very different ways. You know, my postdoctoral mentor, Rianne Taos, was really the person who actively advocated uh, for me, getting me opportunities on grant review panels or committees, getting me lectures and, and introducing me to, you know, prominent leaders in the field. Um, Kevin Burns, another postdoctoral mentor, is probably the one who taught me the most about grant writing and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, Lars Lindholm, uh, a former ISH president who I met through committee work, has, has really been an advocate for me and, and somebody who I regularly seek advice for ISH matters on. And so, you know, I, I really have dozens of individuals who I would consider mentors. And, and so, um, at various stages in my career, I've relied on some more than others, and, and depending on what the, you know, the topic that is of concern, I, I, I've benefited from others. And so I would say, you know, don't think of mentorship as a, like a single match of one mentor and one mentee, but look for many mentors that are going to help you in, in various areas of your career development. Yeah, no, that's great advice, Dylan. I completely agree. And I don't think people should uh, think as a uh, mentor as just someone, like one person. Like you can have a team of mentors that together they will help you develop different skills. And even see, uh, I think, like, you know, career development in uh, different aspects and give you different opinions. Well, and the, the other added benefit is that you don't overburden one person with your needs and, and you know, and, and, uh, you know, you sort of spread that around. And so people are more likely to help you when it's, you know, a focused question that, they're, that you're going to them with as well. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Um, so when in your career did you realize you needed a mentor? On, um, I, I, I would say probably the first time I, I really realized that is when I handed my, my uh, graduate supervisor a manuscript draft. Um, up until that point, I thought I was a pretty good writer. Uh, but it came back with some pretty harsh feedback and I discovered very quickly that I was going to need some help if I was going to get my writing in that case to the le next level, you know, and, and, and so I, I sought out a number of people to sort of get advice on how better to frame it, including my, my supervisor, uh, how, how to better frame my writing and, and sort of improved over time. And after that experience, I kind of learned to seek out advice in advance rather than sort of as a response to criticism and, and uh, so whether it was a, how to structure a presentation or you know, how to put together a teaching lecture, I, I would sort of reach out to colleagues in advance and, and get some sort of it, some advice from them. Yeah, no, that's very good feedback as well. I really like that approach. Yeah. And um, 
in, uh, that regards as well, uh, if we now inverse uh, roles, can you give me examples of ways that you have now helped your mentees? Yeah, I mean, so for me, I'm, I'm pretty lucky and, and happy to be where I am in my career. So if there's anything I can give to a mentee that's gonna help them progress, I'm, I'm always happy to do it. Um, I try to tailor guidance to the individual mentee and their own goals, you know, the lab and they'll have gaps in their writing ability. And so when you're reviewing their writing and working with them, you have to take the time to sit down and explain why you're making the changes that you are to the text, why they should think about that um, and how to structure it in the future. And then that's obviously time consuming, but that's going to help them uh, in the long run, especially, you know, if, if they say in science, certainly, but also, you know, beyond that, just improving writing skills is this fundamental, you know, um, it's a fundamentally important career progression. You know, other mentees, you, you might run into mentees who lack confidence, um, who, you know, initially need to seek out feedback for every small decision they're making in the lab. And so with those individuals, it's about building up confidence uh, in themselves and fostering their ability to work independently. And then other mentees, you'll, you'll get, you know, these, these superstars who come in with a pretty complete skill set and most of your efforts is really to just promote them and help them get exposure so that they're going to have, you know, opportunities at the next level if they're a postdoc, uh, independent research, if they're a PhD student finding a great postdoc. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of all of these things. And it all kind of starts with just having a conversation with the person uh, and finding out what they want to get out of the relationship as a student uh, or trainee. And then, working with them to sort of do what you can to help that and if necessary reaching out to other people who are going to do a better job of helping them with that than you do. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, I absolutely agree with uh, taking the time to teach them and not just, uh, for example, correcting a draft because otherwise it doesn't give them the opportunity to learn and change. And, uh, and over time, they ended up making your uh, work easier as well. Yeah, exactly. It's generally speaking, it's an investment. Nobody ever writes yeah. one piece of, you know, you know, material for you. And so you are going to benefit in the long run as well. And I've seen that with my trainees where over time their writing gets so much better that I just have to sort of look over it and make sure that they haven't missed anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, what traits do you think a good mentee has? Well, flexibility is a big one, you know, to get for get what you are looking for from a mentor you may have to work around a mentor's schedule or you know the the contribution may not really come in a form that you would hope for you know a mentor may not have time to sit down and explain to you all of the you know the example of writing a mentor at, you know may not have time in the moment to sit down and exchange the, uh, explain the changes to you but you go through the document and you realize that they have done that in writing in the document and so you know, being flexible and being able to take what you can get from that relationship, you know, despite the fact that it may change is, is really important. You know, being cognizant of the mentor's time is important. Um, and that is definitely not to say that you shouldn't seek out mentorship. You absolutely should. Um, but sometimes it's unreasonable to expect a mentor to drop what they're doing when you need help. And so being able to sort of be cognizant of that, plan well in advance and give them time to support you um, is really important. And that also sort of comes back to what I was saying earlier about having a network of mentors so that you never really overburden a single individual. Um, honesty is important with your mentors. It's very difficult to provide advice if 
they don't know what's really your motivations and what's really going on. And so being honest with a mentor and upfront is really important. Um, and then, the, you know, the, the one thing I do sort of outside of one-on-one -on -one mentorship that I do fairly regularly is to, to give a lecture on the academic recruitment process. Um, because this is a big mystery to trainees, even ones who are very serious about going on to uh, an academic career. And I think it's really important for anyone interested to have a familiarity with the process um, because it, it can only help. It made a huge difference for me when it came time to get a sort of foster that with trainees as well. Yeah, no, that's really good. Yeah, that's very good. And, and thank you for sharing all that knowledge. Yeah, that's really good. Um, and do you have any advice on how to identify a good training environment? I mean, at the end of the day, just ask and ask as many people as possible and, and really listen to the answers that you're getting back. You know, there's two reasons that someone says that an environment is good. Either it is, or they feel like they need to say that it is. Um, and if an environment really is good, then you're going to hear specific examples of how that environment is good. Um, and, and why they really enjoy working in that environment rather than sort of a, a broad statement. Uh, if possible, meet with the supervisor. Uh, it's not always possible if you're looking at transatlantic uh, uh, appointments, but you know, even in those situations, try to have Skype conversations or something like that and, and just see how you interact with them. Uh, and the other thing is if you find yourself in a, a bad environment somehow, you know, make the best of it, don't burn any bridges but at the same time, get out as quickly as possible because you know, your training career is really short. There are tons of fantastic mentors out there um, and it's just a matter of finding the right match. Yeah, no, that's really good. And uh, how did you uh, overcome talking to someone you find intimidating? <laughs> this is a great question for me because I am innately a very shy and quiet person. Um, and for me, yeah. it took a lot of practice. Uh, there was no way around it. It was just practice. You know, the first few times I approached someone, you know, who you'd say is intimidating or sort of a senior investigator on my own were crippling. I could, I could literally feel my anxiety, but over time it gets easier. Um, and it gets easier for a couple of reasons. One, you realize that it's not that bad. And the other is that you begin to build a network and find people that do the hard work of making an initial introduction for you. Um, and so that, that really can be helpful as well. Um, the other thing that I find helpful is being in situations where you are forced to have interactions like sitting on committees. So over time, you know, being on a committee, you can build relationships with individuals just through committee work that sort of broadens into, you know, research networks and potential collaborations. Yeah, no, I really like that. And thank you for sharing. Um, I'm a very shy person as well. And for me, it was also really difficult to try to overcome that and be able to talk to people that I find intimidating. And, uh, and to this date, I still find many people intimidating, but um, it does get better with time. Yeah, so thank you for sharing. Um, and uh, changing topics now to talk about diversity in hypertension research. What do you think is the biggest issue that we have in terms of diversity and inclusion? And how do you think we can change that in our sector? Yeah, this is, this is a tough question um, on one level because, 
you know, the issues around diversity and inclusion are so regional, you know, in, in some regions of the world, you know, they're more of a concern than within countries, you know, it, it still can be quite regional. You know, in Canada, we have what I consider to be fairly effective policies to ensure appropriate representation on committees in hiring and the grant review process, really at, at most stages. Um, but, you know, the one problem in Canada we're having is that issues surrounding diversity don't get solved overnight. And so, you know, ensuring having appropriate representation on committees is great, but now we're seeing, you know, the hardworking individuals who are great advocates for their committee being overburdened with asks to be involved in, in you know, ensuring adequate representation. And so that's a major challenge in Canada right now is not overburdening the people that are going to be the solution to the problem. Um, you know, more broadly, and this is for anyone from an underrepresented community, um, and I think this applies anywhere in the region, is, is just the need to find a network of colleagues who understand at least partially your perspective and your unique challenges. Um, and that's where, you know, initiatives like ISH's Women in Hypertension Research Committee can really help because they can, you know, bring together individuals who are looking for that sort of network. Um, and the challenge, you know, one of the challenges I think we have to be aware of around that is that these initiatives don't turn into silos. The, the goal is to develop, to develop a network of support for these individuals within the broader research community, but bringing them into the broader research community, because otherwise we're not really benefiting from the knowledge and perspectives of these individuals. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I, and I really like how you linked the uh, um, regional issues uh, because the ISH is so diverse uh, as a society, uh, but also very important issues about uh, women in hypertension research. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, I think, I think that um, I, I tried to speak for Canada because like I said, it is a regional issue and it is something that, you know, we have to deal with both regionally and globally at the same time. Yeah, yeah, but it's still an issue, as you know, in hypertension research specifically. And, uh, and I think it's fantastic that the ISH is uh, doing something uh, and having a, a committee dedicated specifically for uh, women in hypertension research, for example, to try to modify that. Yeah, absolutely. And my final question uh, is um, if you have any uh, ideas that we uh, as a community uh, can do better to support our, our junior researchers during the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is something that's going to time, uh, quite frankly, in terms of the economic recovery and that the impact of the economy on science, the delays in research, um, and the impact that that's going to have on science. You know, when we're talking about our junior researchers, our, our trainees, and our, I think the first thing we have to do is, is sort of reset the clock on certain things. For new, for, for new faculty, you know, in institutions need to be resetting the clock or adjusting the timeline for promotion. It's unreasonable to expect people to sort of meet the same criteria for promotion that was outlined before the COVID pandemic when there's been such an interruption as this. Um, and I think that goes for scholarships and you know, other funding opportunities as well, especially when they're targeted to age ranges or career stages. I think we need to adjust those to account for the fact that COVID has had this major impact on research. Um, 
if you're a trainee who's looking for a position, I, I mean, I, to a certain extent, I can sympathize um, because I was postdocing right after the 2008 financial crisis. And unfortunately, this will have an impact on hiring. You know, I had to, in 2008, which probably was much milder than what we're gonna experience, I had to adjust my own plans. I had to spend more time on preparing applications, planning further in advance just to be competitive for the positions that did come up. And I think that's gonna be true again. Um, you know, broadly, there will be a, there will almost certainly be a slowdown in hiring, but we have to find a way as a community to retain the next generation of scientists. And so, you know, one of the things, like I said, is, is extending funding opportunities, but, you know, maybe we need to be considering some sort of non-traditional positions, uh, transitional positions for ex exceptional postdocs, uh, where independent positions aren't necessarily available right now, um, so that we can retain those individuals because, um, I don't know that that's always happened in the past with, with slowdowns such as this. You know, ultimately, I think we're going to have to get through this as a research community, um, working together and, and sharing whatever burden does come from this. And so with funding challenges, you know, I'd like to see grant totals reduced rather than the number of grants funded because that's going to maintain capacity, which is probably the best determinant of research advances is just capacity. Um, and so I'm hoping that institutions will do that, um, but we're still sort of waiting to see that. No, that's very good, uh, very good comments as well. And I absolutely agree that we need to find ways of retaining uh, fantastic uh, new researchers or young researchers that we have at the moment, uh, because it is going to be very challenging times. It was already, at least in some countries like Australia, and it will get worse before it can get better again. Yeah, thank you for those comments, yeah. Um, that was it from me. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to this podcast. I think this is fantastic information and I'm sure it will be very helpful to our uh, junior uh, community. And hopefully we can even uh, discuss in taking some actions from uh, this podcast and seeing whether we can um, yeah, use some of this information that is shared to try to help uh, our new investigators. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and for anybody listening um, who is facing these challenges, I mean, I think don't hesitate to ask, yeah, even if it is, you know, intimidating, um, just reach out to, to people. ISH is one of the most friendly organizations you're ever going to uh, interact with. And I, I can't say enough about the, the leadership and the, and the people involved. So um, I'd strongly encourage you to, to reach out.